When Uber's engineering team published a blog post about moving to MySQL from Postgres, Marcus Vinand started receiving lots of email. That's because Marcus writes about databases on his blog, Use the Index Luke, which is a guide to database performance for developers. The people emailing Marcus wanted to know, if Postgres doesn't work well for Uber, is it safe to use for anyone? Marcus wrote a detailed blog post that was a response to Uber's discussion of Postgres. And in today's episode, Marcus explains why Postgres is perfectly fine for most applications. We talk about database indexes, we talk about many other topics. Most developers are not experts in choosing between different databases because the average developer maybe knows the difference between a NoSQL database like Mongo and a normalized SQL database like MySQL, but that developer might not know the more subtle differences between different SQL databases like MySQL and Postgres. That is why Marcus's site is so useful and why it was a pleasure to have him on the show to talk about databases. Marcus Vinand writes about databases at Use the Index Luke, a blog about database performance, a guide to database performance for developers. Marcus, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Hello. So we have done a few shows recently about this issue of Uber moving from MySQL to Postgres, and the blog posts about this migration were kind of popular. They trended, uh, and the episodes that I recorded were kind of popular, and one thing I was surprised about as I dug into these topics and did some reporting on it, did some research, is that I was quite interested, I found myself interested in databases, and I had thought that databases were this arcane topic that you had to be a DBA to understand, but I was actually surprised, like, it's it's quite interesting, and, um, and so I, I want to kind of start there, like, why was this topic of Uber's database migration so popular around the internet? That's a tough question. I think to a certain amount, uh, every big tech company blogging about some decisions they make, especially in the database scene, has good chances to, to go viral at the moment. It's just uh, the in the database scene, there's a lot of movement in the last years, like the, all the NoSQL and Big Data and all of that, that makes it quite easy and if one of the big companies with the well-known names comes and, and says, okay, we we found that this particular technology is not a good fit for our need, and that's why we changed to the other one, uh, all of this, these blocks are always going through the sky. Well, when you see a paper come out of Google, for example, and they come out with something like, um, what was that database that CockroachDB was based on, Spanner? Or something like that, you know, some some new database technology. There's not as much virality to it, but I feel like this particular decision had something to do with tribalism. Like there was like an us versus them uh, mentality that some people took away from the blog post. It wasn't actually intended, probably by the author, but you know, there was this like, oh, like let's latch on to Postgres or oh, let's latch on to MySQL and be part of that tribe. Uh, did you did you get that sense from the kind of internet interactions that you saw? Yeah, well, the, the way it started was that I actually realized that this, this blog post has been published, but I didn't have the time to read it at that time. 
Um, and while I was busy doing other things, my emails uh, were coming in and people were asking me about this blog and is, is, they were really asking like, is it really that bad? Is, is Postgres that much crap and so on? And this actually caught my attention. And that's also the reason why I uh, then blogged about it. And I think indeed the tone of the blog post is not very fair and it's actually not helpful to decide whether Postgres is a, the right tool for a job at hand. So before we get into the the database discussion too much of you know what, what Postgres is and versus MySQL, the things that you wrote about on your blog in great detail, who, who are you? Why were you enough of an authority on databases that people were starting to send you emails worried that Postgres was problematic? I mean, you have a, you have a blog of about database performance, you do training. Tell me a little about who you are and how you got into this line of work. Yeah, well, I used to work for a bank here in Austria. And uh, without planning it that way, it turned out that after 10 years, I used to be the developer having the the database experience. It was really no choice. It just happened to be that way. And um, at some point in time, I changed my my life plan and said, okay, I want to do my own business. And that's where I also started to write the blog, usetheindexlook.com, which was designed as a book from the beginning. I suggested it to a, a publisher, but they uh, declined it, so I published it on the blog. But eventually, after it was finished, I still published this other book. And the special thing about this book is that it is not focused on one particular uh, SQL database, but it covers pretty much any SQL database. And that brings me into a niche that I have um, a good feeling about um, the stronger and weaker points of each database. And I'm quite often getting questions like, I do have this use case, what do you think? Is this the right choice or what What should I look for? So I think this is something um, which is quite important for, for my readers to know that I'm working with all the bit different databases and I have some, some distance, but still... Uh, good insight in all of these database technologies to, to, to give you some guidance on decisions like that. Mm. And when you see all of these new databases popping up, whether we're talking about just the NoSQL databases that have popped up in the last five, six, seven years, or talking about newer databases that classify themselves as NoSQL, you could talk about, um, um, uh, what am I, what's that, MemSQL, MemSQL or you know other these other uh, um, Vault DB these other things. What when you're like looking at these different databases and this this large population of databases that are that are cropping up, are there any like um, misconceptions that chronic misconceptions that you think people have about how you should be evaluating databases? I think many people are are just hoping to become the next Facebook or whatever and um, think it's uh, safe to use the same technology, but I think it's it's the wrong way to to start thinking of this problem at all. Because the, the key strengths of the SQL databases is actually that they are very flexible. That you design the schema in usually in the normalized way, but it's, it's not a requirement. You can even do it denormalized. Um, usually you design it in a normalized way because that uh, enables you to later on write queries to answer specific questions. But the important point is that you don't design your schema for the questions. You design your schema to, to for the data, and later on you use SQL 
to reshape this data uh, to answer your question. And I think this is a common misconception. Quite often people are designing their their database um, just to answer some specific questions. And if new questions come up or the questions change, then they might have some problems. And there is SQL, SQL databases are quite flexible tool because it's, it's easy to ask different questions later on. Mm. So are the mistakes that people are making as they focus too much on maybe making their, uh, thinking about their databases in, in terms of how am I going to be able to make schema changes aggressively later on? Or what are those, you know, when you say people are thinking they're going to be the next Facebook and they're making incorrect choices because of that, um, what are they What are they missing about the straightforward um, SQL databases that have been around for a long time? Yeah, well, they are more powerful than they think. And even if we have to think that the uh, hardware we have nowadays is also extremely powerful. I have quite a lot of clients which run their full enterprise on a single box, which is not, not very big at all. And they are still running hundreds of thousand users on that. So you can come quite a long way with, with the old technology before you need to give up the flexibility in favor of scalability. Definitely. So your the name of your blog is Use the Index, Luke. Why, why is SQL performance all about indexing? What is the importance of indexing? Yeah, the indexing is the number one tool for, for database performance. But what's special about indexing is that indexing is uh, falls into the responsibility of the developers. And this is hardly known and it's actually not written in the textbooks like that. And that's the reason why I wrote a guide for, to database performance for developers. And what developers need to take care of is indexing. And this is what they are not aware of. And this is um, what this webbook or blog or whatever you call it, used index look, is about. And this is, of course directly relevant to what happened at Uber because arguably they got into a situation where they had made so many indexes that it was creating issues for them and arguably one solution would have been to not make those indexes in the first places place but once you've made them it's kind of hard to go back there are two interesting questions here the number of indexes i think they mentioned in the blog post that they might have had too many of them but I don't have any information about that. So it, sometimes you actually really need a lot of indexes. It's, it's hard to judge. We would need to, to look at, the, at their case in particular. The other uh, strange thing I've noticed in their, their use case is that they have had quite a lot of problems with what they refer to write amplification and compared it that this is, this is better in, in MySQL. And actually, the only case where this is really better in MySQL is not in a general case of writing, like inserting into tables, but only for updates. And this is something which is strange in that way that usually you design SQL databases to record facts, and the facts are usually just inserted. The update procedure is usually just used to to correct wrongly recorded facts. That's the main purpose of the update. Um, in the traditional way of designing schemas. And out of these facts you have recorded, you are then using richer SQL queries to derive some, some answer questions, basically. So what I think, or that, that's just an uncommon case because they said um, this was a major problem, that the updates were suffering from this write amplification. Um, and it's just uncommon that you have so many updates compared to the inserts 
that this becomes a, a real problem, except you're mainly using it to store uh, transient data, like like caching or so. Then you're updating it a lot, of course. But this is a use case which is often better handled outside of the database. The idea of of indexing and uh, so so by the way, uh, in an interview I did with the guy that wrote that blog post, he actually did say that they probably did make too many indexes and and what he, what he said was that early on in Uber, you know, Uber was scaling so quickly, the number of developers who were not experienced with databases or who were not intensely experienced, they didn't know a whole lot about indexing and what the purpose of indexing was and what the downsides of creating a lot of indexes were. They they did as he said, probably make too many indexes. Um, why don't you give us an overview of like when should you make an in when should you make a new index on a database and what are the risks associated with creating a new index? Should you should you be picky or should you just make as many indexes as you need? Uh, that's an excellent question because you actually asked when to create a new index and creating a new index is indeed the last thing to do. If, if nothing else works, then you create a new index. So, um, the way I'm teaching it is that the first thing is you, ha- you, first of all, you have to understand how indexes work and what type of queries they can help. And this is actually more powerful than, than most people think because mo- most people think indexes are just there to find data quickly. But in fact, uh, indexes can also help you with other, t- uh, uh, operations like sorting data. And indexes can be used to physically change the layout that data is stored on disk so that when you later um, query some related data that they happens to be stored nearby on the disk. So the, it's quite a powerful tool. So first of all, you have to understand what the simple tool can, can do for you. And then once you have a query that is not running fast enough, uh, you need to, to analyze the, the, the index demand of this query. This might be several demands if the query is accessing several tables. And you, you need to, to satisfy this demand in some way. And the first thing is, of course, to look at existing indexes, um, whether they are already satisfying this index demand or if they can be changed to maybe uh, satisfy this demand. And only in case um, extending existing indexes is not an option, then, then you should start thinking about maybe adding new indexes. But both extending and adding new indexes has some risks, but definitely adding a new index has more risk. First of all, every index is redundant data, so it needs some space. That means it needs disk space, which is quite often not a problem, but it also decreases the cache hit rate because you will have this data also in memory. So the cache hit rate will go down if you create a new index. So it's, it's the memory consumption. It's also the, the right overhead because the index must be kept in sync. As I mentioned, it's, it is redundant data. So every time you're doing an insert update, delete to the base table, the indexes must be updated. That's one of the case where, um, Uber complained about regarding the update. And fin- finally, there's the third, third point. Um, the more indexes you provide to the database, the harder it is to decide for the database to pick the right ones. So the database needs to think longer about picking the right ones and the odds of making a wrong decisions are actually higher. So adding an index is really the last option. So, you know, for, for people who are listening who may be less familiar with 
with databases and database indexing. Like I know I worked uh, as a software engineer for probably three or four years without ever making a new index, without ever having to type the command to do that. Why? What is an index, and what are what are the circumstances where somebody should create an index? Just let's let's just let's go to the basics. So the there are different types of indexes, but the most important index is the B tree index, and the B tree index is basically just a ordered. It's ordered data. It's redundancy. So you are, you can pick some columns out of a table. Let's say column A and column B, and the index will basically be um, those two columns ordered according to their natural ordering, like um, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, and so on. And while the table is actually not ordered, an index is ordered. And this makes the big difference because it works basically like in a telephone book, in the old printed ones, you know, that if you have, even if you have millions of, of names in a telephone book, it's still easy to find one particular name uh, because, you know, once it is ordered, you can just do a, a binary search. And the B tree structure of the index is actually a little bit more tricky because it needs to cope with the updates all the time. So while the, the good old telephone book is printed every year, the actual index we have in databases must be kept in sync all the time. That means it needs a little bit more complex data structures to do all the insert and deletes without a, a lot of, of uh, work. But it basically comes down to it's a sorted, a sorted representation of the index data. Right. And so it, it's not necessarily copying all of the data, but it is creating references to, to all the data. Is that accurate? It's copying the key data and adding references to the, to the remaining data. So if you have, let's say, a, a table with uh, 100 columns and you're creating an index on three columns, then the content of these three columns will be copied over to the index. Now let's talk a bit about this Uber discussion, this Uber migration. As I understand, there was a confluence of circumstances at Uber. There were the, the fact that they had more indexes than perhaps they should have. There was the fact that updates were propagating to all of these indexes rather than just a select, um, a select number of indexes. And then those updates were being amplified by the write-ahead log. So is that, uh, would you say it's an accurate representation? Or why don't you explain what happened at Uber from your perspective? I think the first thing which, which is happening is that they are running a lot of, lot of updates on a possibly heavily indexed table. And indeed, usually you would expect that if you have an index on a column A and you're doing an update on a column uh, Z, that you don't need to touch that index, which is only having the column A. But this is the, the unique approach Postgres has, so that it, in most cases, or in many cases, needs to update all the indexes, even if they don't include the index data. So this was the problem. They have maybe too many indexes, at least quite some of them, and doing a lot of updates on them. That, I think, was the main problem, which caused um, the right amplification, or generally the high frequency of, of writer headlock entries. And I think they also suffered because the, of the physical replication, like Postgres does it, to physically replicate the writer headlock to the slaves, which was then also um, using more network bandwidth than, than they had, I guess. Yeah. And 
why does Postgres, which so Uber was using Postgres before they wrote this blockbuster. I think they're still using it for many of their applications, but now they don't want to use it as much. They want to use MySQL together with their own homemade schema list thing. But why does Postgres do this sort of updating? Because so the one of their issues was they update a row and not only does it update the index the indexes that res- correspond to that row, but I guess it has to update other indexes, even up to, uh, even indexes that do not contain that row. Why is that? Yeah, it's actually about columns, not about rows. So, oh, columns, okay. Yeah, the, the reason is that every time you are changing a row, updating a row in Postgres, it's not actually overwritten. There's a new row created with the new data. You have then two versions of that same row in the database. And the reason for that is uh, that if you're running a database, um, you must be able to to do some kind of snapshotting of it. It's the so-called multi-version concurrency control, MVCC feature, that um, if you're running a long query that takes maybe 10 minutes or even longer, that you still need to provide some consistency in terms that if other changes happen to this database during that runtime, that you still need to answer the query as though it is a atomic query immediately finishing. So therefore, Postgres keeps the old row versions in the database. Queries still needing those old versions can still access it. And the new row is stored somewhere else. And the reason, that's the reason why all indexes must be updated because physically for Postgres, it's actually a new row. It's actually an insert. So you you write that the article was perhaps misinterpreted by the internet audience because the real takeaway was not that Postgres was bad. It was just that Postgres was not the best fit for Uber's environment. What do you mean by that? Yeah, well, if they really have that, that use case that they're doing updates, updates, updates all of the time, then they will suffer from the problem they explained. And using a database that does not suffer from that problem will will basically help them. So that's, I think, uh, a fair point, a correct point. But what I think the, the article was rather bad about is to pointing out the actual use case they had. Because it's really only if you do a lot of updates, way more updates than you're doing inserts. Otherwise, it doesn't matter so much. Right. Okay. So, so this is this is your the bone that you had to pick with it was that some people had the takeaway that Postgres has an inefficient architecture for writes, and this is a subtle but different lesson to take away than Postgres has limitations for update heavy use cases. Explain that distinction. The, 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 what is the distinction between update heavy use cases and the inefficiency for writes? Yeah, I think inefficiency for writes affects uh, all, all three types of, of write operations. That's insert, update, delete. And most of the time you are doing inserts, you're adding new data, you're recording new facts into your database. Um, while update is just one use case, which is usually not the most common one out of this insert, update, delete. And if you look at delete, for example, the way Postgres is treating delete, if they would benchmark it, they would find out that Postgres is actually faster at deleting at MySQL. So if delete would be very important for them, 
it, it would look different because uh, Postgres because Postgres keeps the data in the database even if you delete it for the same reason like we have two versions after the update. Um, it just marks it as logically deleted and it does not remove it from the indexes yet. So it's only marking it in a table. So deleting is faster. For example, update is slower. Insert is about the same. Yeah, and so uh, yeah, I, I think I think Evan, the guy that wrote the article, probably would have been more particular with his language if he would have known that <laughs> that the article would have gone so viral. It is unfortunate that um, those slight semantic differences in what he said was uh, you know taken perhaps out of context because it was examined so closely by the hordes of people that read it. Um, there is something that you mentioned about Postgres that was not in the Uber article, um, that there is no mention of heap-only tuples, which is a way to update a tuple repeatedly without touching the indexed columns. And this would not necessarily have helped Uber, but your point in writing it was that it would solve certain write-heavy use cases that other companies might have. Is that accurate? Yes. So there is this heap-only hot update. It's called heap-only tuples. So this is one special case where Postgres already optimized that problem that uh, if you're updating uh, any field that all the indexes needs to be updated. And in that special case, which is basically you're not updating any index data and the new row version happens to fit into the same data uh, page the old row version is in that uh, special case the indexes doesn't need to be updated although it sounds like special case if you know about it and make good use of it then it can become a common case or it can even become the lifesaver for your use case because it basically means that um, you don't put those fields you're updating heavily into any index and then it will work so it means if you're a common use case is, for example, timestamp, last modified timestamp, which is quite often updated with every single um, write operation or with every update. Um, but if you don't put this into any index and you're just updating this last modified timestamp, then uh, you can benefit from this heap-only tuple optimization, which yeah, voids actually the problem they described. Right. So you also suggested that Uber might have underestimated some of the downsides of MySQL, specifically the clustered index penalty. What is the clustered index penalty? Yeah, that's a term I invented. Um, it is so the way Postgres stores a table, it's a so-called heap table. Um, it just has some space where it stores row after row after row in no particular order. And once a row has been inserted, because due to its immutability, it does never move to a different space on, on disk. It, it will remain where it was written for in the, in the first place. That means any index can use a physical pointer to point to that row because it never changes its address. In MySQL, it's different. It doesn't use, or with InnoDB, I have to say, with InnoDB and MySQL, it's different. It doesn't use heap tables. It uses the so-called clustered index concept, which means it uses an index to store all table data. But as I mentioned before, an index is already always something sorted. So that means if you're inserting somewhere into the index, you might come to the situation where you need to move a lot of data, or at least a little data, to, to keep the order. Therefore, it, the, the invariant doesn't hold true that once 
If you write a row to one specific place on disk, it will remain there forever. It might be moved to some other place later on due to insert and therefore the other indexes cannot use the physical address of that row to refer to that row. Mm -hmm. Instead, they are using just the primary key. So therefore you have two levels of indexes. While in Postgres you have the heap table in the middle and the, the indexes all around them and they can all directly access the heap table. In MySQL you have this clustered index in the middle and then other indexes around them. But accessing the clustered index is less efficient than accessing a heap table because the heap table here, it's just a physical address. I can just say it's a file name, a file offset, and there the row is. But for the clustered index, it actually means I have to do a search like in a telephone book. So start at the middle, look left, right, is it bigger, is it less, and do an actual search operation, which takes more time than just um, doing one, one I.O. operation and grab the data, where you know it must be there because I wrote it there and it doesn't move away. You also took some issue with how Uber's article discussed the topic of rebalancing B-tree indexes. So I only have a vague idea of what a B-tree is and how it works. Can you explain what a B-tree is? I know you discussed it a little bit earlier, but explain what it is and explain what index rebalancing is. Yeah. So index rebalancing is something that actually doesn't exist in, in databases. I really don't like that word because it puts the wrong idea in the mind of, of the people. So the B-tree index is, or the B-tree itself is, let me think about how to, where to start. It's a tree, obviously it's a balance tree. That's the, the important point. And the balance is kept in a way which doesn't need to move a lot of data. And it's not a periodic process. It's with every single insert, the, the insert is done in such a way that the balance must be kept all the time. So it's not that you need to, to check whether it is still in balance or um, do some maintenance to bring it back in balance. It's just with every single write operation, the, the write operation is done in such a way that the, the balance is kept all the time with medium effort actually. And maybe balance is something I should explain um, that basically means that the uh, the way from the root node to the lowest level node is the same across the full tree. Oh, so sure. It, so it means every row can be found at the same time, uh, for the, uh, at the same speed. Sure, definitely. And, and can you explain why that was relevant to the Uber article? Why, um, in your kind of recap of the article, what did you have to say about index rebalancing? Ooh, let me think about it. I didn't read my article. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, I think it. Uh, I think it was coming up because of the bug they had with the replication. Oh yes. Okay. I, I think it was related to that. So above all the problems they had, they have. They happened to hit a Postgres replication bug, and they were worried that the physical replication of Postgres might break more than than just a little bit because of the rebalance. I think this is what I, I remember, and. Yeah, well, it's true. It's true. If, if you hit a bug, I mean, okay, you, you, you're, you're, everything can happen. It's the way it is. Exactly. Um, yeah. That's the way it is. Nevertheless, right, definitely. Nevertheless, um, I just 
just to make sure there, there is some overhead in adding indexes for writing the data. Writing will go slower down if you add more indexes, but it's not as bad as rebalancing and meaning you have to re rebuild the complete index. It's a very efficient algorithm. It works quite well for decades. It was invented in the 70s. Of course, it was improved since then quite a lot, but it, it, it manages it. It does the trick by moving only very little data. It's really extremely efficient. Now, a quote from the Uber article that you did agree with was, it was a quote about ORMs. He said, for instance, say a developer has some code that has to send an, an email of a receipt to a user. Depending on how that's co that code is written, the code may implicitly have a database transaction that's held open until after the email finishes sending. While it's always bad form to let your code hold open database transactions while performing unrelated blocking I.O., the reality is that most engineers are not database experts. They may not always understand this problem, especially when using an ORM that obscures low-level details like open transactions. This type of open transaction problem, and more generally, a misunderstanding for how the ORM layer interacts with the actual database, is apparently widespread. Why is that? Why is it so widespread that there is this open transaction issue where people don't really understand how the ORM works? Yeah, I think it's not just the open transactions. That's one of the, one oh. of the aspects. <laughs> yeah, I think it's it's yeah, wider. Uh, as far as I can say from my observations is that in the general field, not just related to the Uber statement, but in, in generally, Many developers use the ORM to, to hide themselves uh, or isolate themselves from the database and as a tool to, to, um, delegate, uh, acting with the database without actually ever having understood how the database works behind. And unfortunately, that doesn't work. Even if, I don't know what, what they're using at, at Uber, but if you look at Hibernate, for example, which is, I think, a very common ORM tool in the Java scene, even the creator of Hibernate keeps on stating that Hibernate is an addition to your tool belt. It gives you more, more ways to, to, to solve problems. And sometimes it's a good tool for a task and sometimes not. And you still need to understand how databases work, even if you're using a ORM tool. Nevertheless, through the past decades, I think that that just vanished. It's hardly anybody knows about uh, left join, outer join, and for example, transactions. And that transactions are a real thing, and that even read-only transactions have their good use case because they 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 keep the the snapshot life for you. So as long as you have the read-only transaction open, the database gives you a frozen point of view. Even if someone else changes the data, and even if that someone else commits the changes, you still don't see it if you, as long as you have, have the transaction open. That means you can more easily accure the, about the correctness of your code because you can program as though you was al were al alone in the in the database, and that's an extremely powerful tool. The more general consequence I see of this is just that. Um, you know, is is it is it true perhaps that this is a pro this is a, an issue this is a wider issue the fact that develop like uh you know developers on the front end might have to do some database some some database interactions where they need to know about these things like left join or outer join or whatever um, and the fact that they are using the ORM as this 
trick to uh, obscure low-level details and and which consequently gets them into problems. But is this like a, is this a does this speak to a problem in the way that we're we're building tools today? Because like for example, you see, or I don't know if you've read about these tools, but there's these tools like GraphQL and um, Falcor from Netflix that are essentially these things where you can request the data. You always request the data. Just you make a JSON request, and then you have a server in the middle that federates that request to the actual databases that are doing the transaction. So it seems like these are layers that are doing what developers would want out of an ORM, this uh, obscuring from the lower-level details. Are, is this the direction that we need to move in, or do you think that developers really do need to learn the lower-level transactionality of these databases and there's just no getting around it? Yeah, I don't agree with the termination, saying it as a low-level thing. It's a pretty powerful abstraction, the, the transaction. And to explain that, the main purpose of the transactions is to write software that works in a concurrent execution environment, but while writing the software, you don't have to take care of this concurrency because the database takes care of it. And this is extremely powerful, I think. That's completely underestimated. But to to take benefit of this, you just have to define, okay, here the transaction starts and here it ends. And even if it's a read-only transaction, uh, database, please take care of me. I'm just um, programming as though I was alone. And uh, I trust you. And databases do that. And it works if you, if you use it correctly. I think it's something, I think it's, it's it starts with the education. Even if I'm also teaching it at some universities of applied sciences. And I see... It's just too much nowadays. We have so many tools and the universities need to teach or at least touch most of these tools. The time to cover the grounds is just vanishing. It's just buzzwords everywhere and no one takes care about the, the basis anymore because there is no time because the, the, the university still takes maybe five years and that's it. And you have to fit in that many bus, buzzwords. It's just impossible. Well, and at a certain point, buzzwords become, I think they do actually become things that are useful and they become these foundations that we can actually, we can build on. They do become useful core abstractions. Um, so, you know, for example, like I remember I was taught assembly language at uh, at university and, uh, you know, in retrospect, like, what did we really need to spend a week and a half on on assembly language, you know, maybe this is something that is is getting old. So, I mean, this is like a broader conversation. You know, how since you're teaching at a university and you're interacting with people on this level, how when does a university know to you know sacrifice what might be called fundamentals and move up the stack and um, abandon older things? Yeah, that's the the impossible thing to do because just they're running out of time. Um, I think, of course, we need to have a, a look at the more modern technologies as well. But as we don't know which of them will become uh, mainstream or, or will yeah, will become widely accepted, we also have to to be sure to teach some of the foundations which are still valid. I mean, databases and uh, transactions, for example, or ACID, in general, it's still valid concept. It's not that it's replaced. It's just that in some situations, let, let's name the beast, in some situations, the cap theorem 
comes in. So if you happen to scale to an extent where you cannot run it on a single machine anymore, then yes, then you have to give up something. No question. But until that point, the, the, the isolation asset is a valid concept, a useful concept. It's not, not wrong. Yeah, I think cap cap is a great example of that's like a fundamental um a fundamental thing. I think there's actually I would say that at least half of people that I graduated with probably graduated without ever being introduced to the cap theorem and yet there were two or four weeks spent on figuring out what assembly language is and that to me seems like a misappropriation of what is what are the fundamentals that you need to know about computer science these days. Um, I don't know. Maybe that's not for me to judge. So at the I mean, end, the cap theorem. I think it, it's also an important message. But what what is maybe not stressed enough is that as long as you can run on a single box, and this is maybe for for companies of that size, as long as you're within those bounds, you don't have to care about it. This is somehow the the message that is lost. I think, and then you can can take the benefit of acid and and. Uh, yeah, just program as though you were alone. At the end of this article, the the unfortunate takeaway that many people had from this article is that Postgres is lousy. The, the, they, they, they got that impression from the Uber article because Uber was moving away from Postgres. So when this type of thing happens where people take a soundbite-sized lesson away from a post that may or may not be totally reflective of the actual technology, what the technology can do. Does can this actually lead to significant negative impact in the community or is this just gonna is this just typically like a blip on the radar that doesn't actually affect anything? I honestly don't know. If it's going in this way the postgres to MySQL I mean I, I really don't know. I just don't know. Yeah, well, you know, one other thing I found that was interesting studying these databases and preparing for these shows was I got the feeling that, and this is to your point about databases being fundamental, you know, I did get the feeling that that studying databases up close, they deal with the same problems that distributed systems deal with at the application level. Like, you know, I've been doing some shows recently about Kafka, and Kafka is this, you know, distributed basically queue or log, however you want to talk about it. Um, and then, you know, I do these shows about Postgres and, and MySQL, and I find that databases have this core abstraction of the multi-version concurrency control um, and the the write-ahead log, and it, it feels very similar to the same problems that distributed systems deal with at the higher level application stuff. Does, it, does that sound accurate to you, or is that... Do you think that's overly romantic? No, I think there are indeed some concepts that have proven to be right, like um, just appending to files and not overwriting files. That the writer uh, writer headlock is just a uh, append only file. There are some concepts that have proven to be correct, no matter which type of application you are doing. They will be used in in databases and in in any other applications as well. So, are there areas in databases that are particularly exciting to you right now these you know i touched on these things earlier like cockroach db volt db these new sql databases are these exciting to you or is this do you think this is just overhyped yeah at least here in europe it's actually no topic at all what what's exciting me or what what's 
my current area of interest is um, how the SQL language has evolved over the past 20 years and nobody noticed. Most common example is, for example, there are, there, are, there are new ways to build aggregates, the so-called window functions. People might know the window functions because even uh, Spark and other, other tools have them, and they are part of the SQL standard since uh, 2003. They are supported by many, many databases. Now also coming to MySQL 8.0, it's actually one of the last databases not yet supporting it. And if you go and ask people working with SQL and ask them whether they know this feature or not, you will surprisingly often get the answer, no, no idea, never heard of that. And that's also pretty sad because that's yeah, it's available for decades now. And yeah, nobody noticed. Another example is um, uh, with the most recent uh, release of the SQL standard, SQL 2011, introduced the concept of uh, temporal tables, which finally solves one of the last problems we got due to normalization. Because one of the problems that was unsolved in, at the time uh, was that um, how to cope with changing data, like, like updates. It's basically about updates. Um, and now the SQL standard has some tools where you can say, um, if I'm doing an update on my data, just make a new permanent row version out of that. And if I want later on to ask how the data was looking at a specific time in the past, then I can still query it. So all this insert, update, delete is no longer destructive and actually overwriting data on the logical point of view, but you can keep versions in the in the database. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and, and that's that ties right into the discussions I've had recently about Kafka, just about being able to go back in time and see how things looked basically because we have these append-only abstractions and it becomes very easy to reason about, okay, how do we roll back the changes that we've had and looked at, look at the past? So, um, well, Marcus, I, I want to begin to wrap up. Um, why don't you tell a, a little bit about, like, when, what are the types of uh, teaching that you're doing when, like, when, when a company brings you in or uh, when a when a particular person asks you for some kind of teaching, what what are they looking for, and what do you uh, deliver in your in your lessons? So the most common request I have is to basically teach the website to use the indexlook.com. That means indexing and SQL performance for developers, just focused on what developers need to know, not to how to configure the operating system or the size the hardware or anything like that, but basically how to write sane SQL and how to provide the right indexes. This is the most common training I'm doing. Other than that, I'm pretty much doing every training which is focused on SQL from a development perspective. So that also includes this um, more modern SQL features, for example. Well, um, that sounds like a great place to wrap up. Marcus, thanks for coming on the show and giving your perspective on the Uber database uh, debates and everything you had to say about databases. It's very helpful. Okay, thanks for having me. Thanks to Symphono for sponsoring Software Engineering Daily. Symphono is a custom engineering shop where senior engineers tackle big tech challenges while learning from each other. Check it out at symphono.com slash sedaily. That's S-Y-M-P-H-O-N-O dot com slash sedaily. Thanks again, Symphono. Wow.